You're listening to The Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. Here at The Voice of Insurance, we look at an extremely broad cross-section of the global insurance and reinsurance markets, from fascinating niches right to the top to the giants of the sector. Well, today's guest is right at the top. He has the biggest underwriting job in the world, with the size and scale to be able to move global markets. That means knowing how he is thinking is required knowledge for anyone who wants to get a feel for what is happening in the marketplace. In this interview, I encountered someone cautiously optimistic of continued rate rises and new growth opportunities. But perhaps more importantly, I met someone confident that his organisation has the financial strength and risk appetite to make the most of those new opportunities as they present themselves. In this podcast, we examine the reinsurance market from end to end. As 1-1 begins to loom in the diary, I can highly recommend this episode to you. Enjoy the listen. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. Um, I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes and let's get on with the podcast. Why don't you tell me what Munich Re's current strategic underwriting plan is? Yeah, good afternoon, Mark, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. Look, I mean, Munich Re's current business or underwriting strategy I would say has not really changed due to COVID-19. We continue to focus on maybe three strategic initiatives. It's first of all, it's business growth, it's business excellence, and it's innovation. So in respect of business growth, our strong capitalization now should enable us to really seize profitable business opportunities in the current hardening market environment. We currently observe a flight to quality And I think we remain a reliable and stable partner for our client in these times where they need us most. In respect of business excellence, we continue to invest in our our underwriting, in our risk management capabilities, of course, also in being close to our clients. And of course, we try to invest in the new topics like cyber expertise or leveraging data analytics and so on. And in respect of innovation or digital transformation, We try to push the boundaries of insurability. We try to invest in data-driven solutions and look at new trends like IoT or AI. That's that's maybe the broader strategy. When it comes to, of course, the immediate next months, of course, the environment has changed or is changing at the moment. So we are coming out of a period, uh, maybe from 2013, 2018, with some continuous softening in the markets. 
And only in 2019, the, the market has stabilized. And now in 2020, the market uh, starts to harden. And this is maybe also because we had a couple of bad nut cut years. Uh, 2017, 2018, we saw several hurricanes in the US, four large typhoons in Japan, several other losses like the wildfires in California and Australia. And whilst 2020 started okay, we are now also going into a quite active hurricane season. Uh, there's the first typhoons also over Japan and Korea, and we started also the wildfire season in California quite early. So I think uh, there are a number of factors, first of all, on the event side, but also when it comes to the overall environment, like the low interest environment, which I think everybody realizes at the moment that it will stay for some time. Or when we see the U.S. liability segment with quite some reserving uncertainty, I think these are all a number of factors that bring more discipline to the market and will presumably drive an overall hardening market. And I think what's different or important this time, it's not only a question of rate. I think it's also a question of coverage, of loss occurrence definition, retention levels, and therefore it will be a, certainly a very interesting renewal season coming forward. Talking about growth, is it going to mostly come from rate increases or is it going to come from actually doing more volume, more transactions? It's a combination of both. Uh, when it comes to growth from, a, from an overall top line perspective, I think it is, of course, also driven by growing the business in a, in a hardening environment. I mean, you think about the split of a, of a reinsurance business with usually a lot of proportional premium, and the smaller part is the non-proportional business. Of course, the rate improvements are mainly affecting the non-proportional. So you couldn't really actively grow your business just by rate, but by, by seizing opportunities in a hardening market, and I think there are plenty of opportunities. I think in, in the next couple of months, we will focus a lot on our long-term partners, I would say, and help them getting their business placed. And if we can offer them their more capacity in, in such a market environment, then this should enable us to combine uh, rate increases, but also overall growth. You said in your opening statement, you said about it's not just going to be rate, it's going to be also terms and conditions. So are you going to be looking to be more restrictive in your terms and conditions going forward for 2021? Yeah, good question. Uh, you know, I don't think it's about being more restrictive. I mean, I generally don't like the idea of restricting reinsurance coverage too much. Our insurance clients, they need our support not only for parts of their exposure, but for their whole balance sheet. So it's never a good starting point if our clients are running some exposures that we want to exclude from coverage. At the same time, of course, there are some exposures out there that we shouldn't cover at all, that we as many we do not want to cover, but that we also don't think they should be covered by the insurance market overall. And when you when you think about such topics and maybe the current pandemics, it's at least to some extent an example. We talk a lot about the, the business interruption, whether that can be covered on, on a wide scale. I think then we need together with our clients rather address this in the original policy language than just to exclude it from the reinsurance coverage. In general, are you looking to be getting more rate adequacy out of this market? I think it's a combination. We need more rate adequacy out of this market. I mean, I don't think it's about we want to uh, increase rates because we want to increase margins. Rather, we need to get it back to rate adequacy to a technical level. At the same time, of course, when I mentioned some of the things at the moment that we shouldn't cover at all, of course, then 10% rate uh, in addition doesn't help you. If a risk is not insurable, you shouldn't insure it uh, independently for what price. In terms of rate getting back to rate adequacy, that does imply that rates weren't adequate before. How far do you think we have to go? We had AM Best say that we need at least another couple of years for reinsurance to get back to full rate adequacy or what they view to be rate adequacy against cost of capital. How much longer does this hardening have to happen before you're happy with the adequacy overall of your portfolio? 
So, uh, of course, it would be nice to get it back to an adequate level just in one go and then to keep it there. But unfortunately, history has told us that this is very often not likely, but it takes you as many years to get it back to also as many years how prices maybe came down. And I, I mentioned before, I think we had seen a softening from 2013 to maybe 17, 18, and only since 18, 19, 20, we see some hardening. And frankly, I believe this has to continue for some years. I mean, the market, I think, doesn't need only a correction uh, for the loss trends from the past. But of course, we also need to think about some future development, of course. And, and, and at the moment, uh, it's not only kind of the events that I've mentioned or, or the lower in, in investment environment, but also I think we currently see that some systemic risks are on the rise. Everybody talks at the moment about pandemics, but you could also talk about cyber. You can think about climate change and how that risk will impact us if we don't show action against climate change. Or is it the level of maybe civil unrest and political risk that we can see at the moment? So I think the current improving market conditions will remain for a while. Do you think all of those things are connected in some way? Are they connected? I mean, some things are certainly connected. When you think about some of those systemic risks, I mean, they are certainly influenced by globalization also. I mean, the way how our pandemics at the moment is maybe possible to spread is a different one than maybe 50 years ago. When you think about some political risks out there, there's obviously a great connection. Would I say that political risk or pandemic is highly correlated or connected with the climate change uh, risk or with the individual loss events that we have seen in the past years? Certainly not. Uh, so I think there's both. There's some, some are connected and some are quite independent. I'm going to ask you about strategically, obviously, you participate in the market and you buy your protections for yourselves as well. Obviously, you're, but you're majorly a net writer. But looking at the way you can balance your portfolio, would you, for example, if the retro market, which we know is one of the hardest segments of the marketplace, would you be happy to retain a lot more of that, use that balance sheet strength for keeping more of the risk on your own balance sheet rather than buying retro if you feel it's not, if it's not economical? So Mark, I think you're right. We are net underwriters. So this means that uh, the business that we write, that we believe in, we usually also want to keep it net. But of course, also we, we see some business both in the traditional retro market as well as into the alternative capital market. Not necessarily as we need to do this, but more for strategic reasons. I mean, we have built some long-term partnerships uh, with some of the retro markets, alternative capital markets as well. And uh, certainly we don't aim to change our strategy there. I mean, we can't call it on the one side strategic partners and just because of the market opportunistically change that. On the other hand, uh, of course, if the retro terms harden too much, we consider we could consider keeping more net. But I wouldn't say that's our strategic ambition entering into maybe our, our retro discussion. I mean, we in choice, I would say, a very high reputation in the retro market, both in terms of reliability, in terms of our business model, also data quality, and also the communication of why we are purchasing retro. And I think these values, they have gained enormously in importance in recent years. And therefore, of course, uh, we, we also want to keep those relationships. ILS and alternative capital, obviously, it's had quite a difficult time in the last two or three years with trapped capital and these other things. But is it right to categorize what you've just said is that you still see ILS and alternative capital as a useful partner and it's still a strategic part of the way that you manage your risk? Yeah, I think the, the amount of alternative capital is largely unchanged. Uh, I think it's still around maybe the 90 billion US dollar mark. But you're right, parts of that uh, capital seems to be trapped because of the recent loss experience and the uncertainty, not only COVID-19, but also some other events that just taking a bit longer to see where they're going. So I expect certainly there are significant higher returns expectations from investors. 
Uh, and it seems maybe that there's less risk appetite for structures like aggregate structures and so on, which have been maybe a bit more popular in that market segment than maybe in the traditional reinsurance market. But I would say that the trend goes into the right direction that the current structures uh, should be the preferred one. So that's not a surprise. And this may be in line with traditional reinsurance market. So um, when I think about the ILS market, then I would say the focus there still seems to be a lot on natural catastrophe business. So I wouldn't expect that the ILS market has a bigger influence on other exposures such as non-damage BI exposures, pandemic risk or cyber market yet. I mean, maybe one day. But uh, I mean, from a buyer's perspective, I think ILS and alternative capital will remain a valid option. We will see, I think, a flight to quality and this, I think, from both ends and investors seem to be selective in choosing their partners. So certainly we want to continue with them. We're in the middle of a big loss event with COVID-19. How big a, a factor is that uncertainty around COVID-19? Obviously, we had this hardening was already begun. How would you categorize what the effect that COVID-19 has had on the market? And also, I'd like to ask you whether this is a very long, long tail loss or potentially quite a short tail loss. But now that at least we've had some duration, at least we've got some data now a little bit. I don't know what your gut feeling is on, on this. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that COVID-19 is the main driver for the hardening of the market. As I said, and sorry for maybe repeating uh, the comments, I think we're coming out of this continuous softening in the period of bad nutcut years, and the interest rates have come down beforehand already. Also, I think some other trends like individual man-made losses on the aviation side, on the space side, or the concerns about the US liability business, I think there have been a num number of factors that have been driving uncertainty in the market overall. And now, of course, COVID-19 contributes to this uncertainty. I think we're all clear the crisis is by far not over yet, and we don't know what to expect from a second or third wave. So uh, there are not only the question of what comes with a second or third wave, but of course also some legal uncertainties around coverage and how what that will mean for, for losses. So overall, uh, I mean, say, having said this, uh, on, your, on your question, is COVID-19 rather a long tail loss that will keep us busy for some years? I would say yes. On the other hand, it's also not so untypical. I mean, when you think about some of the largest nutcut events, big hurricanes or big earthquakes, they are usually also not too short tail events, but they also keep us busy for five or 10 years and influence the overall market environment. But to really quantify how much of the hardening COVID-19 puts on top of the anyway hardening is maybe, you can't answer that straightforward. Okay, you mentioned there about reserve strengthening and casualty reserves, perhaps in particular. And of course, when we think about that, we look at the US. What's your feel for the strength of industry casualty reserves overall, particularly looking at the US? And also, do you think some of those casualty loss trends, are they going to continue to worsen? I see the US liability business as a challenge, to be frank. And this is most likely a combination of adverse loss trends. So, I mean, we often talk about this buzzword of social inflation. I think it's also a consequence of rate inadequacy in the past, both on the primary insurance side, but maybe also on the reinsurance side. And you're right, potentially also of not enough conservative reserving. I mean, let's be honest, the real hard markets in the industry in the past had rather been driven by reserving problems than, than just by a big cut event. So when we look at the current market environment uh, and the overall hardening, at least it suggests that there could be some problems maybe also in reserving. Maybe not yet that there's under-reserving, but certainly that you don't have the reserve buffers to easily use those buffers to compensate inadequacy of rates in the new business that you're writing. Will the loss trends continue? Well, as much as I hope not, there are, of course, not many signals yet that these trends have stopped or have even turned around. 
And on the other hand, I think we also need to admit if these trends, uh, especially in the US, especially related to social inflation and increasing jury awards continue, I mean, the question needs to be asked whether increasing rates can fix this or whether this becomes a very difficult risk to ensure in the future. As a gut feeling, how much of the rate inadequacy was down to the trend worsening and how much of it was down to inadequate pricing? Oh, that's so difficult to answer. I mean, that depends on 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 the individual uh, subsegments. It's maybe even depends on the individual seed uh, and and the reinsurance terms you agreed. So, so I I think that would be pure speculation to put the number behind the, the separate trends. Yeah. And I suppose, well, how much of the hardening now is an attempt to fix problems of the past and how much is looking at this trend and, and projecting it forwards and thinking we need to increase the prices so we can see the trend coming? I think what we have seen in the last couple of weeks, in the last couple of months, is, is first of all fixing kind of the problems from the past. And I think only now we really need to dig deeper into the trends and the economic environment and the impacts that so many other factors have to really assess how much more rate increase is, is or other uh, measures maybe are needed uh, for the future. We've had a situation where we've had some capital raisings. Do you think in general, would you categorize these have been defensive to reinforce balance sheets? or genuinely aggressive to help incumbents grow into the harder market and write more? Yeah, if I only knew, I mean, I guess you have to ask those who increase the capital in recent times. I'm not sure whether I can and I should judge uh, myself. I think it's it's really a mix of both. I mean, we have seen some, not necessarily also reacting to the losses on, on the liability side, maybe also to some maybe uh, constraints from, from how also the uh, asset side has developed. And some others are communicating that they want to try to seize opportunities in the current market environment. And I have no reason to doubt that, that this is some of driver for some of the market players as well. So I think it's a mix of both. I suppose as and as Munich re that sometimes just projecting that strength at times of difficulty when people are panicking and uh, markets are crashing and all sorts of things bad things are happening is probably just a good thing in itself isn't it to project that defensive strength yeah I think that is one of the biggest kind of values also that our long-term partners see in us this financial security the financial stability maybe also some sometimes maybe sometimes a bit of a boring but a certain conservatism in how we approach our business and that should certainly help in the current uncertain market environment boring is very good when uh, you, you want your reinsurer to be boring in many ways I think <laughs> yeah I think it's about the right combination boring when it comes to surprises but fascinating when it comes to how whether we can bring new solutions to the clients and can maybe identify businesses new businesses together on the more exciting side of Munich Re for many years now well probably more than 15 years you've pursued a strategy of increasing your exposure to specialty insurance the specialty insurance segment how much further has that got to run in terms of you, you know your strategy do you feel that you've got as far into specialty as you would like to to or do you think you've got a lot further to go and obviously the specialty market itself is probably one of the hardest segments of the global insurance uh, marketplace at the moment yeah, I think certainly overall our ambition to expand in our specialty business over the recent years has certainly proven to add value to our overall business. I think it's fair to say that we have some really nice businesses there when you think about some great uh, companies and brands like our Munich Re Syndicate, uh, Hartford Steam Boiler, American Modern Strong Brands with very capable management and underwriting teams and backed by the financial capacity of Munich Re Group. At the same time, I would also say there's still room for growth in that business too. I mean, with our Munich Re Specialty Insurance in the US, maybe the timing to grow in some, some specialty classes, especially the NDS segment is maybe just right. I mean, we focused over the last two or three years on doing our homework on strategy and staffing and systems. And maybe it's now the right point in time to harvest some of those investments.
we should be looking forward to perhaps more news from, from Munich Re uh, coming forward. Hopefully. <laughs> Excellent. You mentioned Lloyd's. Is Lloyd's still a really, is Lloyd's still an attractive platform for growth for a business of the scale of Munich Re? Absolutely. I think I just mentioned our Munich Re syndicate is doing quite well, has been continuously one of the best performing Lloyd syndicates for years. This is certainly because of a very strong and capable team that we have here and, and, and the very clear, clearly defined risk appetite which they have. But they, of course, also benefit from the overall Lloyd's platform. I think John Neal created a lot of momentum to improve the Lloyd's platform. And to advance the marketplace, I think he and his team is, is very determined to improve the performance overall and to reduce the costs of doing business via Lloyds. That's appreciated. And, and, and Lloyds, of course, has a very strong brand recognition globally, especially in the US. That's completely out of questions. Lloyds has always been, I would say, a good center for specialty business with great expertise, with innovation power, with great distribution capabilities. And John's focus on digitalization and culture will certainly further advance. I mean, you may have also seen that we have just founded our innovation syndicate, and I think we wouldn't have done this if we did not believe in the Lloyds platform. You're getting price rises. So what makes you happier? Getting a 20% price rise or whatever you get, but having the same terms as expiry, you know, which are presumably quite wide terms from the end of a soft market, or would you rather restrict that cover and have an increase, a commensurate increase in price adequacy? That really depends on the topic. I think if it's a risk that is fully within our risk appetite, that we understand that is structured well, where also the alignment of interest between us, our clients, and maybe the end customers is right, I think then the focus at the moment would rather be on rate increases. When it comes to risks that actually are outside of our appetite, that we don't understand, that we that, that present difficulties to the industry when it comes to, to accumulation, then presumably a 10% to 20% price rise just will never compensate. I mean, pandemics or accumulation of following pandemics is, is obvious. I mean, it's also then a question of, is anyone prepared to pay the price? I mean, there have been some offerings out there when it comes to epidemic solutions, for example, in the past, but the market wasn't interested because the, the risk awareness wasn't there and therefore also not the preparedness to pay for it. So therefore, at the end, not everything can can done via price. And I think especially in the forthcoming renewal, a lot of discussions also and very seen level between our seedings, brokers and ourselves will be hold on coverage as well. Just on that COVID exclusion coverage question, is that really a debate that's now finished? We had around the 1st of April renewals, of course, it was in the middle of the, the early phase of the pandemic, and there was more of a debate around it. But what is the state of that debate looking towards uh, the 1st of January now? Do you think everything is more settled? You know, I think on the reinsurance side, I think the discussions are not so difficult. I think in principle, everybody would agree that the accumulation risk of pandemics or the coverage of widespread business interruption, non-damage business interruption cannot be covered. And therefore, I think I would be surprised if not most reinsurance treaties would have a clear, also clearly worded exclusion for that type of business. I think the concerns, and that's not a concern for the insurers only, but for us as reinsurers as well, the concerns are more on the original side. I mean, there, it's not so much that there weren't the right intentions in place, but sometimes maybe the, the wordings have not really matched the underwriting intentions. And there certainly we as an industry have together work on increasing the clarity of wordings and thereby describing it not only to the customers in a very clear way, what is covered and what is not, but also for understanding it for ourselves that we can actually address it from a risk management perspective. 
Well, Stefan, thank you so much for your time. I'm really, I'm sure you're looking forward to the 1st of January. It's going to be a very interesting renewal as you embark on your mission to further improve uh, rate adequacy or get it back to where you feel it should be. And I'm sure the brokers will be arguing that we've already got there and that you don't need to do anything. But uh, I wish you all the best and thank you so much for taking time to speak to us on on The Voice of Insurance. And, And I hope we'll have you on the show again. Mark, it was a pleasure to talk to you and happy to do it again. Thanks very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.